With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. We need to increase awareness out there because people don't realize this. The, the notion that it is somehow contained is a notion that we have to abandon. This is everywhere. We had a major testing blunder. I applaud the CDC in admitting it and moving on. They have recognized that was a massive misstep. Uh, so what, what my concern is, James, is that the cable news outlets and everybody is saying, oh, we have, you know, uh, 2,000 cases in the United States. We don't have 2,000 cases. We have probably 25 to 50 cases for every one that is confirmed on our Johns Hopkins map. We've been tracking around the world how many cases there are in every place, but those are just confirmed cases. Hospital executives and doctors are telling me, hey, Marty, in Philadelphia, we had a couple deaths. We didn't test them for COVID-19, but we're pretty sure they were COVID-19. Unfortunately, the tests have not been available. So there's this misunderstanding that we've had, say, 59 deaths, which is uh, a recent number, a total tally in the US. It's probably, when we reported 59 deaths uh, this past week, it was probably 500 deaths, but we're just under-testing. It would be good to know if that works, if containment works. I mean, yeah. the, the data from South Korea and Singapore sort of suggests that containment works. And even from China, once they started containing, it seemed like uh, deaths went down and infect infected cases went down. Very pleased to have on the podcast today for this uh, special coronavirus podcast, which is a, the, the fourth podcast now I've done on this virus, and I plan to do one every Monday. But uh, so anyway, uh, on the podcast today is Dr. Marty McCary. He's been on the podcast before. He wrote the book, uh, The Price We Pay, about uh, problems in the healthcare system. He's been uh, a regular voice on, on CNBC and other networks about the coronavirus. He's uh, writes for the Wall Street Journal, USA Today. He's a practicing surgeon at Johns Hopkins and is a professor of health policy and management at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. He's published more than 250 scientific articles, including articles on vulnerable populations and best practices in healthcare. He's uh, he's actually, if you if you uh, read the book Checklist by Atul Gawande, another prominent surgeon and writer uh, who Marty has worked with. He also is uh, the lead author on the original publications describing using a surgical checklist. Uh, he's been elected to the National Academy of Medicine. And uh, he also is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Unaccountable, which was turned into the hit TV series, The Resident. 
So in any case, uh, let's go to the interview. I'll go to the interview in a second, but I do want to say a um, couple of things. One is it's good, and I see a lot of people who are, are skeptical of the data, skeptical of the politics on both sides, but I really want to stress that even if you're skeptical of the data here, it's important to look at what a worst-case scenario can be. It's important to understand who is at risk in the population. And just because elderly people seem to be more at risk, it doesn't mean you should do nothing. Particularly if you're a young person, you need you need to avoid not you need to avoid this disease, this virus so that you don't transmit it to the elderly. So I tell my own kids that when you do what's called social distancing and you stay home from school and you stay home from large events and so on, you're actually saving lives. And if you don't do this, there's a great risk you could be killing people as well. And this is not said in any kind of hysteria. I, I do think, and, and you'll hear in the discussion with Marty, that you know these, these actions that we're taking now as a society uh, could very much help people and has probably helped people in other countries. We'll, we'll soon learn if it's helped people in Italy, for instance. But we need to take it very seriously this social distancing, it's not, this virus is not going to last forever. And we've got some estimates from, from upcoming with, with Marty about that. It's not going to last forever, but we need to do what we can individually and as a society to actually make sure the percentages are as low as possible. And second, I think we should take action figuring out how to help the people who need it. Are there elderly that you know or that anybody knows that they could use deliveries or they can use some sort of um, help from you or a visit or a phone call or food or whatever. Uh, we need to all kind of start taking action. In any case, here's Dr. Marty McCary, who's been a prominent expert throughout this virus. And I also want to add, I will do an outro after the interview with Marty, kind of summarizing my thoughts on what he said. Let's go to the interview. Thanks very much. All right, so Dr. McCary, uh, thanks once again for for coming on the James Alder show again. You you came on uh, uh, you, you came on earlier a few months ago for the price we pay, which is your latest book, which I just mentioned in the intro, uh, which Steve Forbes himself described as a must read for every American, and hopefully it doesn't become more of a must read now in terms of the price we pay, <laughs> in terms of how we're dealing with this uh, pandemic, but. <laughs> Uh, thanks again for, for coming on the show, Marty. Great to be with you, James. And uh, so just tell me a little bit. We haven't yet spoken about the coronavirus. What's I've read some articles. I read one article you've written. I've seen some of your appearances on CNBC. What's, what's your latest thoughts as of today? And then, of course, I'm going to hit you with thousands of questions. <laughs> well, bring them on. Um, you know, James, I'm very concerned that we are about to witness a storm hit this country 10 times worse than Katrina, and we've got 40% of the population right now, according to a survey just released, that thinks actually the worst is behind us. It's not. Uh, I mean, look, I'd love to be wrong, James. I would love for this hurricane to take a different course, but all the projections from our own group at Johns Hopkins, from the Harvard Epidemiology Study, 
to all the infectious diseases specialists that there is an 80 to 90% chance we are going to get hit so hard, it will be the greatest epidemic of our generation since polio. And um, I just don't think people are awake. I think part of it is is the echo chambers of cable news where you go on these you know cable news programs and all you see are these political opinions. You know, we don't need any more political opinions. We need medical opinions. And unfortunately, um, um, you know, we live in an era where Twitter and social media promotes everybody blurting something out without knowing any information. I think it's time to get prepared. I'm telling people to um, take extra caution for those at high risk. I mean, our parents right now, we've got to watch out and take care of each other. So I'm very concerned. Well, okay, so so let me start off asking a couple of questions about the worst case scenario. Uh, because I, I, I am curious about some of the data, particularly from South Korea and China, which suggests that the kind of containment we're doing right now might produce a, a, a better than worst case scenario. But what is the worst case scenario? Well, the Harvard study suggests that 40 to 70 percent of the U.S. population will have this virus. And now, we know from history, pandemics last about three months. That's how long the Spanish flu lasted in 1918. It went from September to January. Uh, that's how long SARS lasted. That's how long MERS lasted. We can anticipate we will be in the clear in the summertime. Now, that's one piece of good news. The other piece of good news is that it, it is hard for this virus to hurt somebody who is young and healthy. But beyond that, uh, the numbers are not pretty. Our healthcare system is about to get overwhelmed. Can I just run a number by you here? Yeah. So let's say we've got 350 million Americans. Let's take the low end of the Harvard estimate, which says 40 to 70% of Americans will be infected. Let's say 40%. That's 140 million Americans. Now, about 20% from the reports get hospitalized. Let's just assume, to be really conservative, that half of folks don't have symptoms or they have mild symptoms, they blow off, they don't really think they have it. So let's just say instead of 20% get hospitalized, half of that 10%. That is 14 million people coming to our hospitals. And if a quarter of them need an ICU bed or a critical care bed, which is roughly what we're seeing in other countries, that's 3.5 million Americans needing respiratory support or critical care level beds. We only have 100,000 beds critical care beds in the United States. We only have 400 some thousand overall. Now, so, how, how um, quick is it? And these are just naive questions. How quick is it to take a not ICU bed, let's say the next level of support and turn it into an ICU bed? So I was uh, working in the hospital during 9-11 and I witnessed Inova Fairfax Hospital and some others uh, empty out 70% of their patients within hours to get ready for the uh, when it was anticipated to be the 9-11, you know, influx of patients. So let's assume they can convert in an emergency, um, you know, the other 70% of their beds into critical care beds. Let's just assume. Um, that only increases our capacity by two to threefold. Let's say we get to 200,000 bed uh, ICU bed capacity or 300,000 we're looking at a possible 3.5 million patients. Now, look, let's say let's say the number estimates off and we get half of that. We're still talking about overwhelming the healthcare system. And James, what concerns me is that these are not really opinions. What we are watching in Italy right now is a preview of what we should expect. 
and, and that and, movie. What are we seeing in Italy right now? Well, first of all, China has not been transparent with their data. Iran has not been transparent with their data. But the next biggest country to get this um, uh, early on, Italy, has been extremely transparent. And they they had um, on Saturday 250, roughly Friday and Saturday, averaged about 250 deaths on each of those days. Sunday, it was 386 deaths on that one day. Now, this is it, this last Sunday a week ago. Yeah, this is this past Sunday. Now, um, Italy, northern Italy, those hospitals are overrun. We've, we're talking to doctors there who are now rationing ventilators. Italy is not a poor country. Italy has first-rate hospitals and first-rate doctors and, you know, informed citizens. And we're watching a, a disaster unfold there that is a movie that is about to play in the United States and uh, unfortunately, this idea of American exceptionalism is crossing over in, into arrogance that somehow our immune systems are stronger. This is the best predictor of what we should expect. Now, those, let's say this past Sunday, 386 deaths. Italy is one-fifth of our size, adjusted for population and age differences. That is about 2,000 deaths per day in the United States at this stage of the pandemic at their stage of the pandemic, which is three to four weeks before its peak. Are we ready for to see over a thousand Americans die each day? Well, so, so Marty, let me ask you some questions on, on Italy's data. And then also I want to ask about South Korea. And then the one kind of um, in sort of closed case study we have, even though it's much smaller, is this the data from this cruise ship where, where uh, everybody was perhaps exposed to the the virus but in italy since last sunday and since they've done total lockdown has there been less uh cases of infection well first of all it's a great point one difference between italy and the u.s is they've had a total lockdown right they've got martial law we're not even close to that so that's something to factor in people say oh well the italians kiss more and they're more intimate well um they're also doing a total lockdown which we're not doing um, South Korea and Singapore have had model responses to this thing, and they have tested people early, traced them, isolated. It has been a model response. We have we had a major testing blunder. I applaud the CDC in admitting it and moving on. They have recognized that was a massive misstep. Uh, so what, what my concern is, James, is that the cable news outlets and everybody is saying, oh, we have you know, uh, 2,000 cases in the United States. We don't have 2,000 cases. We have probably 25 to 50 cases for every one that is confirmed on our Johns Hopkins map. And all you do is Google Johns Hopkins map, and you'll see we've been tracking around the world how many cases there are in every place. But those are just confirmed cases. Hospital executives and doctors are telling me, hey, Marty, in Philadelphia, we had a couple deaths. We didn't test them for COVID-19, but we're pretty sure they were COVID-19 because the testing uh, situation was such a nightmare to get that done. You know, it doesn't change our management as a doctor. Right? I'm a physician. When somebody comes in with this COVID-19 thing, you treat them the same if it's influenza or COVID-19. You manage them with respiratory support. You provide uh, critical access. So why would we be testing people except to for public health information and to isolate and trace who they've been around. So um, 
unfortunately, the tests have not been available. So there's this misunderstanding that we've had, say, 59 deaths, which is uh, a recent number, a t total tally in the U.S. It's probably when we reported 59 deaths uh, this past week, it was probably 500 deaths, but we're just under testing. So, so you're saying 500 deaths because maybe there are people who died for reasons that maybe at the time we thought were pneumonia or some other respiratory disease, and we miscategorized it. Well, to be honest with you, the doctors have a suspicion that it's COVID-19. Oftentimes they're confident, but they're just, they can't go through the bureaucracy of getting the test. So we refer to those as ILI uh, patients. Uh, influenza-like illness patients. And ILI deaths are surging right now. And say, for example, in New York City, you can look it up, and I'll, I'll tweet this out, but you can see a surge in influenza-like illness deaths. Now, is influenza spiking? No. Influenza has been on the decline for weeks. We know, we can conclude, we can deduce that these are COVID-19 cases. We just couldn't get the test for them. So actually, I'm going to look that up. So the CDC keeps track of <laughs> the uh, CDC's numbers have been outdated for a while. It's embarrassing, okay. to be honest with you. Um, there is another site and um, I'll pull it up here as we're talking. But there's another site where you can track actually cases in New York State. Uh, New York's done a pretty good job tracking. But uh, let's be honest. A lot of times the doctors say, hey, this patient's got COVID-19. It's going to be a nightmare to test the patient. We're busy. We're busy here in the hospital. We're overloaded. Let's just treat the patient presumptively for COVID-19. So all that to say, uh, we need to increase awareness out there because people don't realize this. The, the notion that it is somehow contained is a notion that we have to abandon. This is everywhere. So I'm looking at uh, the, the New York State site, and it's hard to actually uh, understand what's happening here. <laughs> on this site. Uh, <laughs> there's like two different charts. One is spiking up. Oh no, that's in, in November. Uh, yeah, there's this one that I'm looking at right now, positive influenza. Oh, okay. So that's, that's actual influenza results. Uh, I don't know where the ILI ones are. Um, but anyway, I'll, I'll check that out later, but okay. I but I'm curious. So in, in Lombardy, Italy, since the lockdown, do we have any data? Um, Lombardi, uh, yes, we do have some data. By the way, I'm seeing that website as weinberglab.shinyapps.io backslash NYC underscore syndromic. Anyway, Weinberg Lab, I think, is one of the uh, places here that I'm seeing those numbers a spike in the last couple of days in what we call influenza-like illness. Um, Lombardi, you know, we, we are hearing that they are now moving beyond what we call the testing phase. And the irony, James, that we have been, you know, so focused on testing, which we needed to be and we need to be right now. But at a certain point, once we hit a certain threshold, the value of testing goes way down. What do we do when one in two Americans test positive? I mean, is the test really that helpful? So ironically, we may have gotten so far behind the eight ball with the testing uh, that we need to move, you know, folks start focusing on capacity building and not as much on increasing the availability of the test. 
So um, Lombardy has already moved to that point. Lombardy province in northern Italy is now only testing serious illnesses where, they're, um, where they think testing can really help identify a pocket or an isolated cluster, or um, they just want to confirm what it is. So, so, but we don't know the effects yet of their containment. Because, I mean, it seems like it's still relevant to test if, given that they've changed strategy, they've gotten this into essentially this martial law situation, it would be good to know if that works, if containment works. I mean, yeah. the, the data from South Korea and Singapore sort of suggests that containment works. And even from China, once they started containing, it seemed like uh, deaths went down and infect infected cases went down. Um, well, certainly. Well, China, I, there, I have a lot of opinions on China, but basically China is parading around strength like this entire time. China, China likes to project strength, right? So they have reported about 3,000 deaths when the doctors there have told me and my team that they're not even counting body bags. They, they may be, you know, there's rumors that they may be um, uh, disposing of bodies in, in ways that um, are not typical there because no one has been counting. And China claims that they are beyond this, but they have been shut down. The whole country has been shut down. And actually, just a couple of days ago, they started to let people out of their places in Beijing. Now, they're all wearing masks. People are very cautious. They're worried about a second wave. But somehow the idea that China has beat this or that the virus has moved on past China is just not true. It's still a very real threat, and the country has been mostly shut down. We don't have, uh, to answer your question, James, a randomized controlled trial of two countries, one like Italy that's quarantined and one that has not. Although the United States may be an example uh -oh. of well, one also, that has not. Uh, also, England, which is doing a strategy of, of herd immunity right now. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, this is uncharted territory. But if if Italy had 368 deaths on one day, just a couple on Sunday, and they have a massive lockdown, what are we expecting here since we're five times their size? That's my concern. Yeah. So, so, um, but we don't know, we, we don't know yet if there, if Italy's infection rate has gone up or down since the lockdown, we do know in South Korea, as soon as they started doing uh, kind of containment and quarantining that it seemed like infected cases went down and that data seems to be pretty reliable. Well, Italy is definitely reporting more new cases each day. That is, that's definitely true. So the number of cases is going up each day, but I just, I just warn people against interpreting number of cases when those are really confirmed cases. I love our Johns Hopkins team. I love our Johns Hopkins map. It's become the standard now worldwide for tracking cases. But at the same time, people have to remember that map is not accurate because it only represents confirmed cases. And it's a function of testing more so than a function of the actual number of cases out there. Okay, so so I mean, one thing about Italy is if they just did their, started their lockdown a week ago, we're still seeing since people are asymptomatic for for one to two weeks, we're still seeing the results of people who might have gotten the virus two weeks ago, for instance, and now they're kind of in serious shape. So now they're a reported case from up from an asymptomatic case. Yeah, way up. So 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 we don't we won't necessarily see the results of the lockdown for another week from Italy. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm look, if you really want to track this pandemic and you really want to know what to expect in the United States, there's two numbers to track. And I tell this to like the Wall Street traders who are, you know, hounding me to get information about what's going to happen. Track the number of deaths on a day for each day in Italy. And the second number is the number of beds they have available for the number of beds they need. Now, you know, just recently here, they reported 368 deaths in one day and 3,590 cases on that same day, new cases. Right. So the new deaths, almost 400, new cases, almost 3,600 in but, one day. But, but you, would you agree that these cases don't yet reflect the results of the lockdown? Yeah, it's, it's just hard to know the results of the lockdown. And the reality is when there's a bell curve, imagine a bell curve, <clears throat> what you do when you reduce transmission is you squash that curve down. You, you, you prolong it or expand it, and you reduce the surge of, in cases at, at one point in time. And we talk about so-called flattening the curve to reduce the demand on, a, on the healthcare system because that big spike in the middle of the bell curve is something no country can handle. Now, just to give you a sense as to, as to how underprepared we are, we talked about the number of ICU beds in the U.S. We have 2.8 beds of any kind for every 1,000 patients. By comparison, Japan has 13 beds for every one person, or every 1,000 people. We probably rank 32nd in the developed world for number of beds per person in a in a community, and that's because our hospitals run like well-run businesses, and they don't anticipate, uh, you know, a need for this massive fluidity. We don't have a strategic national reserve like we do for oil for right. healthcare, and that's one that's one great concern. So, 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 uh, I agree with this that in the worst case scenario, and and we'll talk about what happens potentially, you know, in a worst case scenario. But I'm trying to I'm trying to just understand. I guess you know, viewing it as a uh, a bell curve, just trying to understand the probabilities of the worst case scenario. So, for instance, we've now put in place these travel bans. A lot of people are self quarantining. A lot of events and large gatherings have been shut down in many states. It's been mandatory that a lot of large events have been shut down, and it does seem like there's been some evidence from South Korea, and depending on how you view the data in China, which I agree is unreliable. At least from South Korea, there does seem to be some evidence that they, this, these sort of policies have flattened the curve a little bit, that that, that less uh, cases of infections have been the result of these kinds of policies that are happening now in the U.S. No doubt. Look, if if you can, as an individual, James, and for me as an individual, if we can reduce our our transmission rate in half, that is, we can wash our hands better, be more careful, not touch doorknobs, use a use a barrier, avoid public areas. If we can change our behaviors to reduce our personal transmission rate in half, we've reduced the societal transmission rate in half. And that, that could have a big impact. Now, we know South Korea has been a model, and you're right. They have been so on top of this, they may have stabilized it or even uh, you know, had a victory over the peak already. You know, They're very careful, but China, um, let's not be fooled. It wasn't like they were shut down just in Wuhan and then reopened. That entire country is on edge. Most people are still uh, not working. People, the schools are still shut down. People were just allowed this weekend to get out and walk in this outdoors in Beijing. So we're not going to go down the, the road of martial law. And I just worry that we're underprepared. 
Right, and 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 I agree. In the in and and we'll talk about that in a second. I'm just trying to still understand uh, some of the data that we've seen. So, for instance, you mentioned, um, or or maybe I brought it up, the the cruise ship where uh, it was quarantined. Uh, 3,700 people were. You mentioned, I think, in your article, uh, your recent article on MedPage, 3,700 people were on the cruise ship. 700 um, people caught the disease. 300, I think, had to be had have some sort of medical treatment, and there were six six deaths. So, so I'm wondering, first off, if all 3,700 uh, were exposed, probably all 3,700 people were exposed to the virus. 700, so 20% got it, as opposed to that 40 to 70% number that the Harvard study suggests. And of the 700, there was less than 1% deaths, albeit six deaths. It's not statistically significant, but I'm just, I'm wondering what you think of that data. Yeah, I think, you know, we have been unfortunately very distracted by arguments about what is the true case fatality rate. Early on, the WHO was saying 3.4% of those people who get it die the U.S. was arguing, we think it's closer to 1%. And unfortunately, this was a, a major, a major hangup, why people wouldn't take this virus seriously. They were saying, oh, you can't believe that stuff. Well, anywhere in that range is really bad, okay? And the case, the Diamond Princess cruise ship was the perfect case study. Like you said, 705 people tested positive, confirmed. So about and, so that's about like 18, 17% of the number of people on the cruise ship. Again, which is different than the Harvard study, which suggests up to 70% of people could be infected in the U.S. It seems like, given our awareness and given that the actual percentage on this cruise ship, an isolated uh, case, seemed to be about 16 or 17% of people exposed got the disease. Do you think that percentage could be reflected uh, uh, in the overall U.S.? I I don't. My personal opinion is no, because they had a total quarantine early on. The second point is that in a bad flu season, we might get 20, 30, 40% of the population getting the flu. So that's not unheard of. It's just the problem is this is more dangerous. And so if 20% of the the people on the cruise ship got it, about 705, and as you said, six people died, and since one more person got it, so that's seven, that's a 1% case fatality rate. Now, granted, that's a slightly older population. And the good news is it is hard for this virus to hurt somebody who's young and healthy, but um, the the data is skewed heavily towards older folks. China said if you were over age 80, your risk of, of dying from it was 14% if you had the infection. So it really does spike when you get up there in years. Right. Although China's probably not counting the asymptomatic cases uh, when they say 14%. <laughs> uh, obviously, obviously, fourteen yeah. percent is a lot, and there might not be many. We just don't know how many asymptomatic cases are of people over age eighty. You're right, and that's why it, it's hard to interpret anything from China. It's hard to interpret anything based only on confirmed and tested cases, and that's why I think the the Diamond Princess is a useful example. And, and the the other thing, the other thing, I'm curious. You say the Diamond Princess was on total quarantine, but what do you think the odds are that the entire population of was was exposed to the to the virus hard to say hard to say james i mean let's assume a third of the folks were exposed to it you know had some sort of common uh interaction or you know most people in these cruise ships don't know each other so they might uh, talk but you don't see people all over the place 
hugging and you know it tend it, it would it was noted in clusters of people people who shared rooms and people who were in, who were in the same uh, groups i see so that suggests that some people who weren't in these clusters weren't even exposed yeah and on the flip side maybe if they were italian they were all hugging and, and greeting each other with a kiss <laughs> who knows but it's yeah. hard to really d- decipher okay so so right now uh you know we've got these kind of we got this travel ban essentially borders are more or less closed large events are all canceled many schools have been closed down like all of my kids schools have been shut down do you think this is going to flatten the curve a little bit like we, we've kind of talked about this a little but what's your final guess on this and i know uh, this doesn't really address hospital preparedness but it does address whether we're going to hit a, a, a horrible worst case scenario it helps. Look, all of that helps. My, my concern is that people get very strong opinions when you talk about shutting down everything. And I think yeah. what we, the reality is what we need to do is realize that we need to break down society into two constructs, essential and non-essential workers and high-risk and low-risk individuals. Now, I would consider essential workers people in credit markets, uh, some fin- parts of the financial services industry, supply chain, pharmacy, food delivery, some restaurants uh, that are delivering food, uh, grocery stores, and healthcare workers. That's what I consider to be essential services. You could, you could add utilities. You could add certain things. I mean, we need to keep people with broadband access. That is our lifeline. But non-essential services, okay, work from home or give your employees FMLA or come up with an arrangement or pull a Mark Cuban and just take tell your folks you're going to take care of them for three months. We will get through this. This will be over sometime in the summer. The high-risk individuals, James, should not be out there, okay? I mean, they can go for a walk in the park, but they should not be having human contact or interaction in any way where they could get this. Anyone who's high-risk, which is folks over 70, if you've had an organ transplant, weakened immune system, on chemo, seizure disorder, severe disability, non-ambulatory, do not interact with anybody, okay? Hunker down, get enough food to get through this, and those people are very high risk, and those folks are sometimes relatives and loved ones. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, obviously, this is this is going to be horrible no matter what. And I'm just trying to like, like it, you know, take other pandemics that killed up to a million, you know, a million or more people around the world. So you have in 1968, for instance, there was the, the Hong Kong flu killed between one and a half and 3 million people around the world. Would you say, and again, it's still early in this, but you know, you know, what, what's the difference just in terms of the numbers and the exponential activity of this, what's the difference between this and something like the Hong Kong flu or H1N1 in 2009 or Asian flu in 1957? I'm just wondering like what other pandemics you can compare this to. Well, this could be roughly five to 10 times worse than any of those. This would, uh, using the low end of the Harvard estimate, affect, uh, kill 14 million people. Now let's, Worldwide, you're saying? No, in the United States. 40% infection rate, that's 140 million people. And then 1% case fatality rate, that's 14 million. Now, I hope hope that is half or a quarter or zero. I I mean, let's be optimistic. But the reality is, what is the risk of over-preparing and then say, oh, you know, Harvard, 
the Harvard estimate ended up being a little high. Uh, that's my concern right now is we, when we see, well, see 386 deaths in one day in Italy, three to four weeks before its peak, that is 2,000 deaths a day in the United States three weeks before our peak in the future. And that's why I think we've got to be super protective of our most vulnerable. Right. So, okay, let's let's talk about protection. So, uh, you know, if I peek outside, it's weird how the streets in New York City are still kind of crowded, which is unusual to me, given the state of panic in, you know, kind of the policy right now. Why do you think people are ignoring? I see people like in the playground just just playing, you know, and I people in, in Zabar's one block away. It's like filled with old people right now. <laughs> well, first of all, real quick, I think I gave you the wrong number. I think I gave you 14 million people could die when, in fact, that was the hospitalization number. 1% 1 of 140 million is 1.4 million deaths. Yeah. That, that is the number of that, that would fit the 40% estimate from Harvard. But, but also, also, we don't, that, that New York, I always question the data because that New York Times, um, or that Harvard report is referring to total cases when, and that includes asymptomatic, when as far as we know, the, the, the fatality rate numbers that are being thrown around in most cases just have to do with people who are uh, being hospitalized. So like one or two, one to two percent of hospitalized. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? 
answer to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Think of the regular flu season. The regular flu kills maybe 30,000 to 80,000 people a year. I think last year it was about 38,000 people a year die. Now, do you know of anyone who died of the regular flu last year? I don't, right? So this is so disproportionate to the vulnerable and towards the elderly. 
that we're going to see probably that same distribution if this thing ends up claiming a 1% case fatality rate. So that 1.4 million, once again, just interpolating the numbers from Harvard would be heavily skewed towards that uh, group. And that's my fear, right? As we go to the playground and we go to a kid's soccer match and we look around, we see people who are like ourselves, who are young and healthy, and we say, hmm, there's no carnage here. I don't know what the big deal is. You know, this, this thing's not a real threat. And that is my concern, right? Because we are community transmitters, sometimes silent without even knowing that we're carriers. We are transmitters to those who are vulnerable. When we go to visit our parents, when we interact with somebody at work who is, you know, 80 years old, those are the very dangerous scenarios that people need to be aware of. Right. So, so what I'm wondering though is the is the one uh, to two percent that the Harvard report is reporting. Um, as potential, like this 1.4 million, or is it 1% of the number of potential hospitalized, the 14 million? So that would be up around 140,000 deaths in the U.S. when this is over. Well, Harvard, Dr. Lipsitch simply reported that 40 to 70% of the population uh, could get this. Now, the 1% case fatality rate is extrapolated from the Diamond Princess, from other countries, from reporting from other countries. So most countries that report are, are landing with a case fatality rate of generally one to 4%. Now, because we know they're not testing a lot of asymptomatic people, we sort of mentally cut that in half, assuming half of people never get tested because they don't even know they have it or they blow off their symptoms. So the 1% case fatality rate is kind of the number I use to eyeball the potential of what this can do. Okay. And then, and then in terms of what we should do, so obviously there's, the stay in your home, wash the hands. There's, uh, uh, you know, do the, you know, there's need versus want. So you said like keep essential workers because we need them, but you know, we don't need to have random, you know, if you have some job that's not essential to the functioning of society, uh, take, a, take some time off. And I'm wondering, is there anything, uh, like, have you seen any kind of, not a cure, but any sort of remedies that could at least help with symptoms or alleviate some of the uh, trauma from this? You know, there are symptom medications, but they don't really uh, slow down the virus. And I'm, I'm amused, James, when I watch the financial networks on TV talk about how this pharma company is on the brink of a new drug or on the, on the brink of a vaccine or who can get to a vaccine quicker. James, we have been working on a medication for the common cold, which is just another type of coronavirus, for 50 years with a big jackpot of money for anyone who can invent something. And we have nothing. Well, why do we think we're going to come up with something in four weeks? Yeah, it's kind of funny because uh, everybody it's a, it's a common saying, there's no cure for the common cold. And, and is this in any way, in terms of treatment, is this in any way different from the common cold or do we have to suffer through this the way we suffer through the common cold? And, the, and just to be clear, the common cold is a kind of coronavirus. <laughs> it is a kind of coronavirus. So, I mean, look, I love the, you know, the, the bold optimistic language of our political leaders and our, you know, drug companies. But let's put things in perspective here. Any vaccine takes about a year. And if we look at our response to other things, have did we come up with a medication for SARS or MERS 
I mean, look how long it took for us to come up with a medication for HIV. So the idea that somehow the, you know, the American ingenuity and innovation, like I heard one commentator say, is going to, we're going to beat this thing with American innovation and ingenuity. Good luck. We have about four weeks until our peak. And we've been working on this coronavirus for 50 years in the form of the common cold, and we don't have squat for it. Let's do what we know. Let's use a treatment that is 100% effective in stopping the transmission and its spread. Let's wash our hands with soap and water. And and the staying indoors. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't... It's not necessarily indoors. It's reducing contact or modes of transmission. So as the weather starts to get nice, it's good for people to go on walks. It, it's probably safe to go out and play tennis as long as you're not, you know, opening the door handle with your hands or you wash your hands before and afterwards. Uh, you know, golf, as long as you're not interacting and stay, as long as you're social distancing. I think it's good for people to stay active and go for runs and walk but they just don't want to interact or come close to others or share common surfaces. So gyms are a bad idea. Um, you know. Yeah. And so, so, so like the gyms are full in New York city right now or not full. There are people in the gyms. Like yeah. I understand are people not reading the news or what's, what's going through people's heads? Cause they're all there's, I assume they're all somewhat intelligent people. Are they not scared? I think they're probably intelligent and misinformed or intelligent and have a sense of resiliency, like we see in teenagers when we tell them not to use drugs or smoke, right? This sense of being indestructible. And my greatest fear, uh, James, is that people think, well, this can't hurt me. And the reality is it is hard for it to hurt someone young and healthy. So they say, I'm not really at high risk, which may be true if you're, say, 33 and healthy. And then they go around and be silent carriers and transmit it through community transmission and promote the public dissemination of this thing. That is <clears throat> a, a, a big concern right now. And I think also, if you look at the survey, 40% of Americans think that they don't think the worst is, in, is ahead of us. They're basically living you know, in denial or they know the information and they don't believe it. I mean, unfortunately, we got some bad information on cable news. We hear politicians. You know, I, I can't believe when I watch cable news and they'll say with us to discuss the coronavirus is Democrat strategist so-and-so or Republican strategist. How about we listen to doctor opinions instead of political opinions? And the only doctor we've had out there was Anthony Fauci. Now, it, it, I probably shouldn't say this, but can I say something about Anthony Fauci? Yes. Look, Anthony Fauci is a darling. He's a darling of the media, highly respected among doctors, great scientist, incredible virologist, and he calmed the country through Ebola, through the AIDS epidemic, through SARS, through MERS. He is a great man, but he has been muted for three months. We have seen this thing about to happen, and all of us in public health well, most of us have been like, why doesn't he say something? He's going on all these networks for the last two months. You can go back and watch anything he's done. All his interviews, they're vague, generalities. He's not saying anything. He's saying, you know, we we just don't know. He kept saying, you know, we don't know. Then he would say, some people are at higher risk than others. And then last weekend, he basically said, 
If you're high risk and you're older, don't go on a cruise. That's it. That's all you have to say. How about let's shut down South by Southwest like many of us lobbied Mayor Adler to do. How about let's, you know, change the NCAA schedule. How about let's postpone the NBA? How about let's make contingency plans for schools? How about we have all non-essential workers stay at home and work from home or get paid to stay at home through some assistance? Where are where have those big messages been? And I've been very disappointed with Anthony Fauci. It was just this past weekend where for the first time he said, we're going to need to ask, ask some people to hunker down. That's the first time he's ever said anything like that. So I think when, when we have a love affair with one doctor in the, in the United States and all everyone falls, you know, jumps on the bandwagon and falls in line, what we, you know, have um, not heard is that um, this dire sense of preparing. We've not heard it from Fauci, and he's just starting to change his tune. I love the man. Great guy. I feel bad. He's 79 years old. He's had an incredibly distinguished career. It hurts me to say this because he's had so many great contributions to medicine, but he he has not said anything specific and, and preparatory until very recently, and I, you know, the government leaders look to him. He he is the head of infectious diseases for the government. So 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 now though, like all those things you just suggested, like major events, major sports events, uh, schools closing, all of this now has happened. And in, and in most states, I think maybe every state, you know, there's a limit on the size of gatherings. So that's effectively shut down. You know, movies, shows, uh, and you know. Sp- other sports events that maybe weren't uh, initially stopped, but so all of this is happening now. And and again, there is some suggestion, both from the data and, and even from what you said, that this could reduce the overall infection rate. You know, this could this could make the peak virus either happen sooner or or perhaps just just lower the number of people who need uh, intense hospital care. Uh, you know, so fortunately we we've done it. I'm wondering if you think. It will avoid, you know, the hospitals being overflooded. It sounds like you don't think it'll still it'll avoid the hospitals being overrun still. No, well, it, everything helps. So what we're trying to do by flattening, imagine this bell curve with a big peak in the center. We're squashing it down and spreading it out more over time, so the peak is later, and the burden is more manageable over time. Because I really worry, James, about our country's nurses and our first responders. And yeah. our physicians and respiratory therapists, they are getting hammered. Do you know healthcare professionals have the highest risk of getting this infection? And when we saw two and a half weeks ago, we saw UC Davis quarantine 120 healthcare workers. That's now a, a bigger quarantine and more national throughout the country. Lots of places are doing it. There's a doctor at Hopkins. There's public information now. This is not uh, inside information who is quarantined. And there's going to be many more, and there's probably many more for everyone that we hear about. Um, who's going to staff the hospital for these massive influxes? Uh, so, so I'm worried. So what do you think? So what do you think will actually happen? How will this play out? Well, I think, unfortunately, James, um, there's going to be some massive triggers in society that may, unfortunately create hysteria and mass panic. And I think it could be a very high profile person 
um, getting sick. Imagine on the evening news, um, Joe Biden is in the hospital right now on a ventilator. What's that going to do to markets? Imagine Lester Holt on the evening news says more than 1,000 Americans died today from the coronavirus. Uh, I mean, there's going to be some trigger. It might be a beloved figure in Hollywood who is not alive. It may be half of Congress is quarantined. There's going to be some trigger, right? It could be an athlete that people are going to say, oh, my gosh, no one is immune. I'm like that person, and I need to go finally and get some food and get prepared and make contingency plans and think about child care and that kind of stuff. Okay. So let's say, let's say that happens. What's what happens next? I'm worried about the shelves on the grocery stores. Now, um, if you look at some of the grocery stores in the United States, the ones in Texas right now are just getting hammered, right? People are coming in there and unfortunately we get these hoarders, you know, and I've stopped telling people as I was from, three months ago up until three weeks ago to go out and get three months of food because the supply chain right now can't handle it. We need to rely on delivery and curbside pickup and uh, delivery services. Um, So right now in some parts of the country, the shelves are empty. And I'm concerned if you look at what happened in China with the long quarantine, people were like on long fasts. People were not eating. People were you know, begging for food. Um, now people are out there. Now there's some, you know, more delivery services. But uh, you worry about what society looks like, not for you and me, James. God, you know, life's been good to us. God's been good to us. But imagine you're someone who lives paycheck to paycheck. And each month you have to decide how much food you can buy based on how much money you have. Half of America has less than $400 of cash on hand. And they don't have a three-month supply of food. They don't, may not even have a three-week supply of food. So as we talked about when we talked about the book, The Price We Pay, when people get hit with these high costs, they get clobbered, and it's, it's crushing. And right now, I, I do worry about those people. Now, I don't want you to be depressed about this stuff. I don't want you to think about who do you know that's vulnerable that could use a drop-off delivery of some food that you might have around some extra food. Think about your parents and what they're doing and how you can encourage them to stay put or not go to the bingo night or avoid their trip that they're planning to take unless it's to an isolated location to hunker down. There's a lot we can do to take care of each other. And that's who we are as Americans, right? We take care of each other. And I think you've seen it already with Mark Cuban saying he's going to take care of all the concession workers that work his NBA games for those, for the duration of this absence. You see the CEO of Delta Airlines say he's going to forego his salary for a year to make sure everybody's whole. That is the great American spirit. And I think more than ever, we need to do that. I wish there were sites, and maybe there are, I wish there were websites around where um, we can see how to, let's say, deliver to the elderly. Like Maybe there are some people who are staying in their apartments don't really have access to the outside world other than through the internet, maybe don't have much of a family, but can sign up for a site. Hey, I need delivery or some help. I I don't know of any sites out there that I can refer people to, to, to help people. I don't know of any either, James. It's a great question. 
you know, I've encouraged people to try to think of folks they know, check in with them by phone. And I think historically, when we have natural disasters or hurricanes, um, that stuff all pops up after the peak, after the, you know, the main damage has been done. I hope to God that this hurricane is going to steer away and shift from the United States. Right now, we are on a, on a direct collision course. And my fear is that people are undergoing their routines uh, without any preparation. It's better to be overprepared and to look back and say, I, you know, I overdid I, it. I agree. It's better to be overprepared. Like, um, but I am wondering if, if we're looking too pessimistically at, at the data that's out there. And I'm not saying people shouldn't stay in. People shouldn't do everything they can to avoid either contracting it or spreading it. Uh, but I wonder if, if when we start looking at numbers like 70% of the U.S. are going to get infected, if, if that's really realistic. It hasn't happened in any country at all. And, uh, you know, we just, we just don't know. It seems like that's something we don't know yet. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think we're going to be closer to that 70% number from the initial Harvard study. It was a range. I, I do think we could be within some margin of error of the 40% number. Let's just assume we get 20%, which is, which is probably what we get in the flu season, right? 20 plus to 30% of people might get the regular seasonal flu. So let's say we get 20%. That may be consistent with what we saw in the Wuhan province of China, where they have about 10 million people, probably about a million of them got the infection, and probably 100,000 people died. That is roughly, um, you know, what what happened over there. So um, I, who knows? I mean, look, I hope we can do some social distancing, hygiene, and hunker down practices and take care of our seniors so that we can cut the rates in half and cut those rates in half and, and make this as least painful as possible. But we have a lot of examples right now. And I think we will look back just like we did in Katrina and say, can you believe the problem with the levees was known for a long time? Or the space shuttle Challenger where we looked back and said, can you believe the O-ring problem was well known to many for a long time and people recommended do acting on it and those recommendations were blown off. My concern is right now we've got so much data from overseas. We have so much information from Wuhan, from Italy. It, it, it's, this will not spare the American immune system. Right? Our immune systems are not stronger than that of the Chinese or Italians. Right. And so I think what we're seeing in Italy is the best preview of what we can expect. Again, the good news is hard for the, this to hurt healthy people. And it will be over by summer. That's the historical pattern. And, and you know, I think possibly good news is that you can flatten the curve with social distancing, which does seem to be the unofficial policy of the U.S. now, even though I still see a lot of people outside, at least legally, a lot of things are shut down right now. Yeah. And that, yeah, I'm, I'm very um, happy to see a lot of people getting on board you know, when I started uh, talking about this and David Klassen, infectious diseases doctor in Utah, and Mark Lipsitch from Harvard, we started telling folks and going on different media outlets, hey, what we're hearing about in Wuhan from talking to the doctors there, this has a very high transmissibility quotient and a, what appears to be a very high case fatality rate. 
and we need to get ready. This is out the cat's out of the bag. We need to get ready. I got you know, so much nasty emails, you know, that was alarmist and all this stuff. And each sequential day, those criticisms go down and down and down. And people are realizing, hey, this is this is something I pay attention to. And I guess also, like you say, it'll be done in the summer. And, and of course, between now and then, horrific things can, can happen. But if you look at other pandemics, there does seem to be at least one revival a few months later. And I shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the Asian flu in 1957, which is a flu-based, not coronavirus-based, but that came back in November. Uh, It it was was sort of like from February to summer, and then uh, came back in in November. So so there is still, like, what are people going to, what should people do in the summer? Should they go out and play and then just go back into their homes uh, in the fall? Well, you know, another good thing um, is that people are learning great personal hygiene. I've never seen people take so many good precautions that, by the way, we will probably benefit from this change in behavior and education for the next several flu seasons, right? Because we should be doing this stuff all the time. And our society is not like Asian societies where if you get a cough, I mean, tell me, have you ever done this in your life? I have never. You get a cough and you just automatically put on a mask and you wear it every single public place you go. That's what they have done in Asia for a long time. I mean, the few people in the U.S. who wear masks out there in public are Asian Americans or Asians visiting. It's a cultural trait. And if nothing else, we have learned incredible uh, personal hygiene and distancing and best practices. And so that is helping. Um, Can I I ask you uh, something? You know, can I ask you a question that I would never, I'm only asking because you're an expert and you would, I would never just ask social media this question, but you know, of course, like everybody, I'm using Dr. Google to understand this more and more. And there does seem after the SARS in 2002, 2003, there does seem to be some uh, published reports by doctors and scientists that anti-malaria uh, drugs might have some preventative ability, at least for SARS back then, like chloroquine. I don't know if I don't even know if I'm saying it right. I'm just reading this. Yeah, chloroquine. Yeah, I. You know, there may be something to it. To be very honest with you, I'm I'm not a laboratory scientist or a virologist. I'm a I'm a public health professor, and so I don't know. But it certainly, as a physician, I could see that the certain properties of not only the medications you mentioned, but the other antivirals out there, like in China, they're using a lot of HIV medications. I could see how that might conceivably reduce some of the viral load or burden or disease. But let's be honest, if you look at something like, uh, you know, canker sores in the United States where, or, or anywhere in the world, the medication, Valtrex, only reduces the symptoms from it but does not actually, you know, reduce its transmissibility or the lo- or the period of the viral infection. So these vi- these different meds could help a little bit, but let's put it in perspective. Um, you know, I, I doubt they're uh, they do a lot, and I think it's worth the research. And Spain and Nebraska, or University of Nebraska, are doing a lot with this stuff to see if other stuff out there works. Stuff that's already on the shelves. But I do not think we're going to medicate ourselves out of this uh, problem. We're going to have to change our behavior and lifestyle. And you're right about this sort of what I call afterquakes, 
That is, after the pandemic, there's another small surge. It, they are relatively rare. Most times, community immunity works. But in the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which killed 25 to 30 million people, there was a sort of second reinfection phenomena that happened later that killed about 200,000 people. So it is something. That's why in China, they're very cautious about getting out there, worried about a second wave. And do you think there's... um you know, the common cold doesn't have much immunity. Like if you get the common cold, you're probably immune for a tiny bit afterwards. And, 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 but then you can get it again. Uh, I don't even, I don't know for sure if that's true, but that's what it, it seems like to me. Do you think there's, you think there's some immunity with this or, or if you, if you get it now, you can get it again. The only reason I think that there probably is immunity with this is that we're seeing sort of the, the down, um, the, the de-escalation side of the curve now of infections. And so I'm hoping that is the sort of community immunity. Now let's, let's hope what, to what, other. What do, what do you mean we're seeing the de-escalation? Where, where are we, where are we seeing it? Like in South Korea or? In Wuhan, in Wuhan. Okay. So uh, things are sl slowly starting to, you know, get back to a semblance of normal. Um, there's two other really rare things that could happen that could uh, make us very lucky. One is the virus just mutates into a less virulent or damaging form. And the other phenomena is that we discovered that there's some heat sensitivity at some very high temperatures, although early evidence suggests that the virus works perfectly fine in temperatures from 55 degrees Fahrenheit to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And as I followed the data in Buenos Aires, where it's been in the 80s, it's following the same playbook that it's following elsewhere. Right. So uh, not not really what, – what other good things can happen? Is there any best-case scenario? <laughs> oh, you know, there, 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 was some, there was some speculation about two weeks ago that it had mutated into a less virulent strain, but I think that research has been debunked. Well, I think – I did see that. I think it, it did mutate, and we often do see mutations at some point, but – I, there was just no evidence to suggest that that mutated strain was any less severe. That's what I saw on it. Okay. Yeah. And so, so, uh, I guess, you know, we got to just strap ourselves in. Like when you say, you know, usually viruses or pandemics run for three months, when do you put the start date of this one in the U S I would say probably early March. Um, if, you look at the Spanish flu of 1918, it started in September and ended in January. Now, interestingly, <laughs> during that pandemic, James, all the leaders, all the government officials and authoritarian uh, figures said, don't worry, it's not that bad. We're, we're pretty much done with it. And they constantly spoke optimistically and were in denial of the reality. All the governors back then, we're talking about how this is not a problem and it's not really going to hurt a lot of people. Don't worry. We're going to get through it. It's an amazing book called The Great Influenza. And I think there's some real lessons from history there. I'm most inspired by seeing people come together. You know, we saw this uh, after 9-11. We saw this at other points in our history, even um, the hurricane in Houston, Texas. It's a time for us to take care of each other. Forget about these political artificial boundaries and, um, you know, see the best in people. And so, so, um, I, I agree. And I, I, I think that's, that's been happening. And, and 
it seems like things are different now as opposed to the Spanish influenza because, you know, even though they delayed it for quite some time, world leaders are all do seem to be responding to this now. So again, in America, essentially everything is canceled for business. Like all, all events are canceled. And a lot of people are, even though I just said earlier, a lot of people are outside. A lot of people I know are self-quarantining and, and so on. So it seems like there is a slightly different response than, than in the Spanish flu. I hope so. You know, it's variable by region. So there are parts of the country, and trust me, I get enough hate mail. Twitter is a nasty place, right? How yeah. dare you suggest that this is going to be a big problem? You know, we need to live our lives. I mean, prominent physicians, too, sometimes in cable, on cable news. We need to be out there and talking, you know, all political nostalgia and the American spirit will overcome this. And, you know, we've this virus knows no boundaries or political parties. And this is a hurricane. It is coming. Let's hope to God he it shifts away. But this is all about preparation right now. And I do hear people like yourself talk about all the precautions you've personally taken. But I do hear people um, who say this is, you know, not going to happen. It's not real. We're proceeding with these events. You know, I speak around the country frequently and I've called all the events I have in the next three months. And I said, just in preparation for the flu season, we want to, or for the um, coronavirus um, pandemic, we want to just go over what, you know, what your plans are. Some of them are like, oh yeah, of course we're canceling. And others are like, no, what are you talking about? No. Oh, why would we cancel? Oh, well, because there's this pandemic. Oh no, no, that's, and I'm like, how could there be this much variation? And I think right now the message and the reason I'm um, going to go on TV a lot here in the next couple of weeks is that we need to speak truth without these political lines, without being worried what people are going to think about us and get people on the overprepared side instead of underprepared side and not rely on government leaders. Look, some of them are doing a great job, but let's just be honest, during Ebola, there was constant, sh you know, shifts and who was in charge and there was a delayed response. And finally, hospitals about six months after the Ebola scare was gone, after Ebola, they started asking everybody who walked into, into the hospital, have you been to Africa? Okay, well, that's about a year too late. Okay, <laughs> that could have been done on day one. I mean, See, you've probably been there. You've probably been to a doctor and they've said, well, you, yeah, I know you don't go to a doctor. But yeah, I, I'm probably, people have accused me of being a hypochondriac because I never go to a doctor. <laughs> and so I'm probably afraid of what I'll find. I thought I was healthy, but then everyone says, no, no, you're probably just a hypochondriac, which now I believe. But and 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 which is why I've been obsessively interested in this. I'm not a germaphobe, but I, I a, have been telling my kids I, I do think the way to get kids to do social distancing is to tell them that right now they're they're like licensed killers, <laughs> and you you need to avoid killing people now, and that's how you stay. That's how you why you stay in, and that's what I've been telling my kids, and hopefully other people are are telling their kids something similar. But I I, I also and I know I've taken up a lot of your time. I I, I really appreciate this. I do want to I do want to suggest that. We don't really, I, I don't like the numbers and, and it's not that I don't like them. It's that I don't quite believe the numbers in this Harvard study either, even though I'm personally taking all the precautions as if they are true. It just seems like 
We haven't seen an example of 40 percent of people getting infected. We haven't seen. We don't really know the um, exposure versus infected rate. You know, exposure over infected rate. We don't really know the infected versus fatalities rate or, or hospitalized rate because we don't know how many asymptomatic people there are. And so I'm just wondering, like, even in the numbers you suggested, like, let's say, you know, 140 million people are infected, but we don't know the exposure rate. We we just might know um, how many are the number amount hospitalized might might be much smaller, and that the fatality rate might only be a small percentage of those hospitalized. That kind of shrinks, and then now we have this social distancing. Each one of these factors shrinks the overall percentages of of both hospitalized and and fatalities. Well, well, it's a great point, but I think two things. One, before the financial collapse, financial advisors were telling families there's that that that's just too extreme. We just would not see a massive downturn of the market. I just can't imagine it, right? I've never seen it before in my lifetime. It's unfathomable. So, th- remember, this is the infection of our generation. The second point is that I think you're right. I think our social distancing and early techniques to to uh, try to contain and address this are working. They are lowering the percent infected from the Harvard estimate numbers. But Italy, remember, went into quarantine early, and they are seeing the U.S. equivalent of 2,000 deaths per day three but, weeks but, before. But that's because, arguably, and I'm not, I'm not trying to question your understanding of the numbers, but I would say we haven't seen the result because there's like a two-week incubation, one to two-week incubation period, and the real full martial law lockdown only happened about a week ago in Italy. We haven't seen the full, we haven't seen any effect yet from their lockdown on, and and we shouldn't have seen it yet. We'll see it probably in the next week or so if numbers start to dive in in Lombardy. That's a great point. But remember, we have not done a lockdown either. So let's assume that 386 deaths in one day is without a lockdown. You're right, the lockdown might help and we might see the benefit down the road, but that's the trajectory that we are on. Now, let's, I would love to be wrong, but in terms of planning, and you're asking all the right questions and you're as uh, smarter than people even say you are. You know, People say you're a super smart that. guy and I, uh, I love it and I love your podcast and I, I love your show. But the, right now, the trajectory that we are on is Italy is about 10 days ahead of us, and we are on a trajectory. So in 10 days, we will have over 1,000 people die a day. I would love to be wrong. That's what the data is telling us. Let's hope it's less. And, and, and that 1,000 could continue to go up if we're not at the uh, – you're saying – when you say uh, pandemics are usually over in three months, when is usually the peak – time is that in the middle of the three months right in the middle right in the middle so so peak could be let's say mid mid april yeah and then we'll start to see number of infected cases go down a week or so after that and and a number of fatalities go down after that roughly yeah somewhere in that range yes and and hopefully as you say these percentages get better uh because of what things we've done but this is just a reminder that we need to to do these things and more and if you're listening to this uh do whatever you can to avoid the spread of this to to avoid getting infected to help other people understand and to maybe see also how you can help those in greater need right now and it's i agree it's definitely uh the i would say 
three things have scared me in my lifetime. The first was 9-11. The second was the financial crisis. And this is now certainly the third. And this, this is, this is arguably the scariest. Well, I think you're taking this seriously. I admire that. I tell people over and over again, don't panic, prepare. We don't want to create hysteria. There's a lot you can do individually. And this is one of the only things in healthcare ever where what you do affects the rest of the country. That is somebody you've never met living in a nursing home or out there who's at risk. What you do will affect the community transmission that will impact somebody else's healthcare outcome. Well, uh, Dr. Marty McCary, uh, I really appreciate your, your time. Where, where can people find you if they, are you on Twitter anymore or do you get too much, uh, hate tweets? I'm on Twitter and I welcome any friendly person to follow me on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn and uh, martymd.com and I'm on all social media. So yeah, feel free to engage, get in touch. A lot of folks have since we had our last conversation about medical bills, and so um, keep up the great work, James. I just love what you're doing. And and you as well, Marty. And again, um, I, I mentioned this in the intro, but you're the author of The Price We Pay, which is how uh, you know business leaders and families can lower their healthcare costs and what's going on in, ter- in, the, in the healthcare industry right now. And uh, hopefully you'll even do a, revision, a revised version of that book after this that <laughs> has some positive stuff in it, but we'll see. So- <laughs> Thanks again, Marty. And uh, um, I hope to talk to you again soon if there's, you know, or feel free to give me a call if you want to update people on anything or if you find out anything new, but I really appreciate this. Okay. Have a good one, James. Good talking with you. Thanks, Marty. Bye. Yep. So again, that was uh, Dr. Marty McCary. And I just want to summarize real quickly uh, what we heard. Uh, First thing is take this very seriously for yourself. Social distancing is important. Doesn't mean you're going to get it if you don't do social distancing. It doesn't mean you should panic. It doesn't mean we should get hysterical. But there does seem to be some evidence that you know staying uh, away from people, not going to things that you don't need to go to, only go to things that you absolutely need to, or if if you don't have an essential job in society, then maybe try to work remotely, try to work from home. Kids should stay home from school. Doesn't mean you don't go outdoors, but stay, you know, within six to ten feet of others. And I don't say this in hysteria, but I say this in terms of the data does seem to suggest that this is helping. And any little bit you help yourself means you help severely the populations that are most at risk, i.e., uh, the elderly. Even if you're not, even if you get it and you know you're going to be okay, like if you're a kid, it looks like you're going to be okay doesn't mean you can just go around and you know risk getting infected. So I'm probably, as I mentioned in the podcast, I'm probably a little bit more optimistic on the data we've seen. And, and Marty is playing the role he should play, which is take this very seriously. And I agree with him. In terms of the worst case scenario, I don't believe that's going to happen, but that doesn't mean the only reason the worst case scenario is not going to happen is because we are starting to take this seriously as a society. And the data is not in yet on what the results of that will be. But there's every reason to be optimistic that if we all take this very seriously, this could be over you know, with much fewer fatalities than are being predicted. And hopefully it'll be over more quickly. So take things seriously, prepare 
for the worst, but I think we have every reason to hope for not necessarily the best, but hope for at least a much better outcome than the worst case scenario if we take the worst case scenario seriously. Thanks again for listening. Uh, subscribe to my podcast if there's, you know, I may have midweek updates. I'll have updates on this whenever there's an opportunity. My goal here is I just want to say I don't money on this podcast. There's ads, but that goes to uh, paying for the infrastructure I have. And I really want to use this platform as a way to share reliable information from reliable people, hopefully share slightly more calm, maybe even optimistic information when when opportunity affords that. And, uh, you know, I did it with Iran. I did it a little bit, you know, over the past month with, or I've did it quite a bit with this coronavirus. And I plan on always doing that with any disaster, although this is a particularly important disaster to stay updated with reliable information. I also want to mention there was some optimistic mention from Marty on antiviral uh, medications. There's no conclusive results on this. I'm just telling you uh, what I'm doing, but I don't recommend it in any way. I'm not trying to spread false information. There is some uh, uh, results about uh, you know the effects of anti-malarial drugs on the SARS virus, which and China has suggested it might be also good for this virus. There are over-the-counter alternatives to to these uh, anti-malarial drugs. I encourage people to do their own research. And again, take any precautions. Be careful. Don't take anything without a doctor saying that's okay for you. And um, look, stay tuned for, for the next update and take care of yourself. Thanks very much. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find?